We were below ground zero at that point with the forces that we were working with. So I just thought, you know what? I don't have a career here anyway because I'm a girl and it doesn't really matter. What do I have to lose? I'm just going to tell this guy named General Petraeus what's actually happening on the ground. <laughs> so I briefed him of exactly what was happening. And he said to me, that's the kind of truth I need. Oil and gas today is more than exploration and production. It's more than the feet drilled or the hours of continuous pumping hours. The oil field is a group of people, companies, technologies, and institutions working towards providing the world with safe, affordable energy that is sustainable for the billions of people that depend on the success of the industry. The Oil Field 360 podcast is a 360-degree deep dive into the leaders of the industry who will provide listeners with a first-hand account of what it takes to build, maintain, and lead the energy business into the future. Oil Field 360 podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, is one of the largest and most experienced energy investment banking firms in the industry, offering M&A advisory, capital markets execution, and investment research. For more information, please visit www.simmonspsc.com. World Oil For more than 103 years, World Oil has provided global decision-makers with coverage of the latest market intelligence and technological advances relating to the upstream oil and gas industry. To subscribe and learn more about these essential resources, please visit www.worldoil.com. Prang & Associates, the global energy search leader. Prang & Associates is the world's leading executive search firm totally dedicated to the energy industry. Over our 39 years, we've assisted more than 750 management teams and boards in 75 countries and conducted nearly 3,600 engagements. For more information, please visit www.prang.com. EIV Capital EIV Capital is a growth equity-focused private equity firm which has been providing capital to the North American energy industry since 2009. The team has extensive experience across the entire energy value chain. We invite you to visit www.eivcapital.com and learn how we partner with entrepreneurs to build businesses. Galtway Industries Known as the most connected and value-driven manufacturing partner in the oil field, Galtway Industries specializes in developing and implementing supply chain solutions for top-tier OEMs with a specialty in steel forgings, castings, machining, and fabrication designed to exceed expectations. Visit www.gultwayindustries.com to learn more. Tomahawk Safety Tomahawk Safety is a leading manufacturer of oil field safety gloves with products that are ergonomically designed for superior fit, offer best-in-class protection, and stand up to the industry's toughest jobs. For more information, please visit www.tomahawksafety.com. Range Valuation Services Range is the only oil and gas-focused valuation and appraisal firm in the financial services industry. Range specializes in appraising and valuing oil field equipment, machinery, inventory, and property and customarily works directly with clients, lenders, investment bankers, insurers, and private equity and debt sponsors. For more information, please visit www.rangevaluationservices.com. Lockton Global Energy and Marine uncommonly different. Lockton is the world's largest privately owned insurance broker and risk finance advisor. 
Lockton's energy expertise is largely centered in Houston and represents the largest concentration of energy specialists, clients, and experiential knowledge in the upstream, midstream, downstream segments of the oil and gas industry. Besides risk finance and risk management consulting, Lockton provides commercial insurance and employee benefits brokerage, as well as human resources and retirement consulting. For more information, please visit www.lockton.com. Welcome to the Oilfield 360 podcast. Uh, this is a very special podcast. It is our first guest of 2020. Uh, my co-host David Rode and I would like to welcome Miss Ann Fox. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We are very excited to have you. I am very excited to be here. Good. This is uh, this is going to be fun. I would I usually ask people if they've ever been on a podcast before, but I I know you have been on podcasts I before. Have. Mm-hmm. What do you think about this technology of I, th- I think anytime you can communi- communicate with people, it's a good thing. And different forms of communication work better for people. And the podcasts seem to be very accessible for people. And they usually can listen to them when they're doing other things. Maybe it's running or driving. And so I think I think more forms of communication and, and more ways for people to access it is always a good thing. Do you yourself listen to podcasts? Sometimes I do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, generally it's challenging for me to manage all of the things in my schedule. Um, but yes, sometimes I listen to podcasts. What, what kind of podcast do you listen to? Um, related to women's issues, energy, um, world events, uh, all kinds of okay. different things. And I, I probably need to do more uh, listening to podcasts and reading books. So that kind of silence and solitude that all of us are missing in our lives, I need to put a little bit more of that in my life. I'm conscious of that. Well, so you're you're going to see some of the line of questions that I have for you. I, you and I, have, we've met a couple times, but we don't really know each other. Uh, David has known you for quite a long time. Yes. So my questions that I'm going to come in with may be a little bit different than his. Sure. So I just appreciate, you know, our audience. One of the things we always tell people as we get into this is there not a lot of people are going to get and Fox for 30 to 45 minutes because you're busy. You have people and things you need to do. So this is very special for a lot of people that aren't going to get that time with you to hear about life experiences and some of the things that you go through as a business leader. Mm -hmm. So I just really wanted to tell you, thank you for coming on. I'll I'll kind of turn it over to my my main co-host here. Yeah. Good morning, Ann. Glad to have you here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. We're going to try to keep this light. Uh, A couple of things just to make you feel comfortable. We're not going to talk about Knox and Unley. You know, we don't have (laughs) him paying off David Bellaby or Pete Exith and still in the limelight from you and Jamie at the uh, 25 Veterans in Energy. Uh, We're not going to talk about Harvard. And and we obviously understand how you got in, but not necessarily how Dave Patterson got in. We're we're still (laughs) questioning that. And then lastly, we're going to try to hold Josh's uh, talking to a minimum. Otherwise, you know, he likes to suck all the air out of the room. So my so, favorite subject is yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> so to kick it off, Ann, I think I think it's good. It lays a foundation for some of the other questions that we have. We hope to get some responses back from. Talk to us about the Marine Corps and specifically Team Phoenix and and your sense of patriotism and also your sacrifice you made to our country and uh, in ultimately what led to where you are today. Sure. Um, so I'm always happy to talk about the Marine Corps and my journey in the Marine Corps. 
I think I've still tried to explore where exactly my patriotism comes from. Certainly, I love the country. I love the ideals of the country. But why exactly was it so strong for me at such a young age? Um, and I don't have a clear answer to that. But I can tell you that my father's service was very impactful to me in thinking about whether or not I wanted to serve in the military. And ultimately, that was always in the back of my mind. So as I grew up and became a young adult, I then wanted to not only serve, but I wanted to serve in what I perceived as the toughest operating environment and the one that would throw me into something that would be least civilian-like. So I was not joining the military to, you know, get a accounting degree or some HR experience. I really wanted to go and get a very military-like experience. And at the time, the United States Marine Corps was the only service that put female officers, so just the officer corps, uh, through infantry training. And most of our training, with the exception of uh, officer candidate school, was all integrated in co-ed. And so that was a very unique dynamic with the Marine Corps that wasn't at the time uh, present with the Army or the Navy or the Coast Guard. So that helped me figure out which service I wanted to be a part of. Um, and that ultimately led me to the Marine Corps. And I joined the Marine Corps in August of 2001. And it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. And of course, none of us knew it was going to happen a month later. Um, and still the best decision I, I've ever made. It was very impactful. And the Marines that I was around, they just taught me so much about humility and loyalty and commitment and dedication and selfless service. And it was just, it was a remarkable experience. It forever changed me. And I also learned about the importance of the human condition outside of these borders and what that means for America. Um, and I think my appreciation being overseas in Iraq, it only furthered how much I value this country and our ideals and principles. Um, so just all in was something I would recommend to anyone is, is to consider service to the country. You, you're, you weren't, uh, you mentioned your father's service, but he wasn't overly excited. No, he was not. Um, he was, uh, he was a green bray in the army in, in Vietnam and he was not happy with my choice at all. In fact, the first time I tried to join the Marine Corps was in college and my parents just at, were adamant against it. Felt like I had so much opportunity outside of the Marine Corps. My father's real concern with the Marine Corps was that it would stymie any potential that I had. And to put it in his words, he said they would put me at a, a desk somewhere putting stamps on envelopes. Um, Is that because of being female you, you met? Yes. Okay. Um, and, and he felt like, you know, his time in Okinawa and also in Vietnam, he felt like their tactics and strategy were off and their culture was off and it was about being harder, not smarter. And I do think the Marine Corps has really evolved uh, since that period of time. So, you know, we, we have become a lot smarter and not harder. And we, have, we were tremendously good at uh, operating in between kinetic and non-kinetic operations uh, overseas, you know, during during the time I was part of the Marine Corps. So I think he had a lot of legacy views of what the Marine Corps looked like. And, and we stopped using the Marine Corps as a country. We stopped using the Marine Corps as a place for uh, criminals. So we started to elevate um, the folks that we were taking in. So very different Marine Corps, I think, um, that my father saw. Well, even when I joined, you, so I, I've heard you say that, I mean, you joined in August of 01. Correct. 
And then you graduate, I'm assuming, later that year or 2002. It depends what your job is. It usually takes a Marine between a year and a year and a half, depending on the schools and the timing, to hit what we call the Fleet Marine Corps. Okay. So, and then I've heard you say that around 2014, they really made some changes. They did. That you they, thought were pretty progressive. So that's yeah. about a 12-year Yeah. Change. So, that, that was when the Secretary of Defense decided that women uh, would have the legal right to participate in combat operations. So, you know, I was long gone from the Marine Corps at the time, uh, but a lot evolved and changed during that period of time. So, so the reason I'm trying to get the dates is so that's a 12-year change from 2 to 14. Fair. And you then you come into the oil and gas industry around eight. Um, I started at SCF Partners, actually, to be precise, in December of 2008, right before that little blip of what we thought was a downturn in the energy industry in 2009. Good timing. Yes. And um, I've often said Ellie Simmons had the the grace and dignity to make a spot for me, um, which there really wasn't a spot for me. I mean, this was a time where people were taking uh, folks out of their organizations, but I think he felt it was a unique time to get combat veterans. He's a deep patriot and also somebody who's very conscious of giving back to his community. So he he found a place for me and that gesture made really all the difference for me. So I would also encourage people that sometimes, you know, one or two kind gestures can make a really big difference um, in people's lives. And, and that was tremendous for me. And it, it really started a journey of me finding my sense of purpose again and and being a little part of building Nine Energy Service. Before we leap forward into that, though, I think just going back to your patriotism, sure. which I think is a, a really neat point not a lot of people know about you. You come out of the military, you go to school, go to Harvard, and General Petraeus reaches back out to you. And what does he say? Um, well, so I first met General Petraeus in August of 2004. Um, at that time, we were engaged in one of the larger urban battles um, in Iraq, and it was uh, in the battle for An-Najaf. And General Petraeus had three stars at the time, and he was really in charge of the Iraqi army and, and, and really developing the whole indigenous kind of Iraqi security force. And I fortunately had been put in charge of being an Iraqi army liaison really just by luck because it was only for a male and uh, it was actually for a major and I was what we called a, a lieutenant and so I was significantly below the rank of the person they were looking for. I was also a girl, not a boy. Um, but I got to do that job because I, I made this little pitch to our operations officer of our infantry battalion there and you know, the fact of the matter is Marines were dying and people really just didn't have time to figure out um, if it really needed to be a boy or a girl. So um, I got that opportunity to take that role. So my job was to work with the Iraqi army, which was splintered. We'd made a lot of really challenging and difficult and incorrect choices as it related to the Iraqi army. And they were getting devastated. So on the one hand, you had Americans dying, but behind that you had a lot of Iraqis dying or fleeing, um, sometimes leaving their weapons, which would then be picked up by insurgents and or bringing their weapons. Um, so it was a really it was a very challenging time. And I ended up meeting him in a tent in the middle of the summer and it was hot. And I had a colonel at the time. Uh, we were all you know, under General Casey's command. And the concept was, you know, you bubble something green 
when you leave theater and it's red when you get to theater. And it was a it was just kind of a topical thing that didn't really work. So my colonel at the time told me that my presentation would be sanitized and it would take out all the pictures I'd put in there and talk about the gaps in supply and training. And we were below ground zero at that point with the forces that we were working with. So I just thought, you know what, I don't have a career here anyway because I'm a girl and it doesn't really matter. What do I have to lose? I'm just going to tell this guy named General Petraeus what's actually happening on the ground. <laughs> so I briefed him of exactly what was happening. And he said to me, that's the kind of truth I need. I just need to wow. have that keep coming. And that was our first encounter. And then we had several more and I ended up then staying behind and working directly for him from the field and living and breathing off of the infrastructure that the U.S. Special Forces had created in that region. So it was the beginning of long relationships. So when I left theater and I went back to business school, I thought, you know, I'm a civilian and I'll have to make my way. But then, you know, 2007 happened and the Senate decided that they might want to confirm General Petraeus with a fourth star and send him back over. So I went to see him the Saturday before his confirmation hearing. And we talked about uh, whether or not to resurrect this little team that we have put together called Team Phoenix. And, um, you know, it was just instant for me. I knew instantly I, I was going to go back, uh, volunteer to go back. I didn't have children at the time. I wasn't married at the time. So it was just the only thing I thought about on the plane back to school is, will school let me graduate? And how do I tell my parents this? Because it's going to be <laughs> devastating to them. Um, when you say, will school, you're talking about Harvard. Business, yes, yeah. yes, Harvard Business School. And the business school was so good to me. They, The professors worked with me after hours. They sat me for my exams early because we surged in May. And so I needed to finish graduation. I, I wasn't actually able to go to graduation, but I needed to finish those exams, go back through some training and get back over there. And, you know, General Petraeus wastes no time. So it's like we get in theater and we're there for no time. And then he has his helicopters send us within hours of meeting him back down into the central southern region. So it was wow, kind of a, a zero a, to 60, you know, yeah. going from that brick and ivy um, and back into that was a little bit jarring, um, but very worth it. And those kids over there are like real heroes. I just have to tell you guys that, you know, the the U.S. population sees all of the special forces on TV. And to me, the real heroes are the kids that are are coming out of these towns in Texas. And we put them in, you know, these Humvees or MRAPs and they're hit again and again and again. And they're kicking doors in day in and day out. And they don't have all the special training and they don't have all the special weaponry. And they are just really inspiring people. And I think most Americans would be so proud of the way they treated the Iraqi people and the children and the women they came in contact with. And, you know, you hear about incidents like Al-Qaim. That's really the exception. These kids were, you know, they exuded every ideal of what it is to be American in my mind. How do you think the, uh, the Americans, and we don't have to get too deep into this, but I feel like uh, the, the civilians did a good job of supporting our troops during the Iraqi war. I mean, they may have disagreed with politics on it, but, you know, I think, I think that uh, were, you, were your fellow Marines encouraged when they would come home, they feel the love, they feel the thank you from most Americans. I, I think they absolutely did. Good. I feel the country really corrected that. And I only refer back to my father's time and his stories. I, I never felt anything but appreciated by the American population. And I think that that is very similar. I wouldn't want to speak for my fellow 
veterans, but I think it's a very similar experience for most of the veterans I know. Well, it's inter- interesting talking about some of the um, the acts, the numerous acts of, of kindness and humanity displayed by our troops while in theater with the indigenous populations and how I think the enemy was able to, in a way, get around us in some regards. And I know Mattis has talked about this and a number of other folks in controlling the information or trying to get ahead of us in the information and creating this false narrative to, you know, ultimately shape emotions and get people all fired up and to a certain degree get the the politicians involved to where they were almost more effective than if they had advanced weaponry against our troops and you guys advancing in some regards. Do you see some of that in the oil and gas industry today with some of the misinformation and false narratives that are being put out about the virtues of oil and gas and other types of uh, energy sources? Is that something you want to comment on? I think, sure. I think um, one of the things that I notice is just that the industry doesn't have a great uh, PR campaign for the things it does well. So right. it spends, it seems to me, spends quite a bit of time defending itself instead of talking about some of the merits of providing uh, access to cheap electricity. So I think, you know, that's just what I see is that there is a counter argument to the benefits. And, and I think there's a natural reaction when you're being attacked to to defend and not say, actually, there's a lot of ways in which we can get better and we need to get better. And oh, by the way, think about all the things that this energy provides, right? And it provides energy independence for the United States. So hopefully we don't have to go to war over natural resources. So there's such a long list um, that we could talk about as far as the benefits of what we do for an industry. But you know, when I think about what's going on with climate change and thinking about the habitat, I really always try to think about things holistically and kind of from a balanced perspective. I think the environment's a really big concern and the carbon footprint that we have in pulling these resources out of the ground is a big concern. I think there's a lot that we can do better. I would love to see regulations around flaring. I think there's a lot of really good EMPs that just absolutely won't flare. So it's like differentiate us, put that regulation on us. Um, I'm a big believer that some rules and regulations allow the free market to really flourish, right? So there's a reason that there's so many flows, so much flow of capital into the United States, because as an equity holder, you know, you have protections. It's the same thing. And I think, you know, we're just so worried that these extremes will come to the industry that we're not as focused on what we do well and quantifying that. So all of this is always about communication. Do you want somebody using dung or coal for heating and breathing that in? Or do you want to replace that with propane, right? Mm -hmm. So neither are very environmentally friendly, but there is a way to go from, you know, step one to step 100. And sometimes I think the challenge is people want us to be at step 100 and there's really good beneficial changes that we can make either for the population's health or well-being um, and the climate as we move along those steps as a society. And so I think there's just it's way too polarized and people are scared to have the conversations. So but I think you'll see that the energy industry start to embrace the environment as as they should. Nobody wants to live in the air quality 
in certain areas that we see in China, for example, right? So we all appreciate clean air. We appreciate um, our rivers and our streams. I'll never forget the first time I came home from overseas, I landed in a place called Aviano, Italy. And two things struck me very much uh, to the point where I've often thought of them today, the clean air. So I stepped off of that plane and I took a breath and I'll, I'll just not forget that because it was clean. And what I was breathing in was burning garbage. Um, you know, obviously in combat, you've got lots of different armaments that are being used. So the air is thick with pollution, very thick. There was no waste management over there. So that struck me. And then the children's laughter. So all the military families, uh, the wives had come and brought us cakes and desserts while we were waiting and they brought their kids and these kids were running around like crazy and they were laughing and, you know, jumping on each other. And I, I did not see any of that animation in the Iraqi children that I was around. So again, I think there's really important steps we need to take and there's easy uh, dollars to pick off the ground right now as it relates to good positive impacts we can have on the climate and we need to take those really seriously but we also need to take seriously world poverty and the impact that this fuel can have on that you're really describing perspective and you know you've I'd, I'd heard earlier when you talked about when you came back to the states just the difference between when you got on the plane and when you got off the plane just stark and then you talk about when you land in Italy, um, the clean air versus the. So, uh, you know, I love to hear. I, I think perspective is one of the best words in the dictionary, because if you have it, you can understand, you can try to look at the other person's argument. And, you know, I, I do believe that our industry needs to be doing more for climate change uh, because we're, we're good. We're smart. We're able to help this. I mean, the, the clean burning gas, there's a lot of natural gas. There's a lot of things we can do. So I wonder, you know, in your circle that you run with, what is the prevailing thought? Is it growing? Is it changing? Is it progressing towards, you know, what, how much more can the oil and gas industry do to help? And I know the answer is a lot, but I mean, are you hearing people talk about it more now? What I honestly see is more worry about the impact that it will have on the industry. And so I see people beginning to embrace it because they feel they must, not necessarily because they feel it is impactful to the future of the world or the future of the environment. I think that that comes over time, but right now the preponderance of the conversation that I hear is around measures to take to be forward leaning into ESG. Are, are you, yeah, I was gonna say, are you speaking ESG? Yes, so yes. it's ESG, um, so environmental social governance issues. And I see people positioning around it so that they may access certain investment dollars. I think the next step and the important step is to really understand what a kilogram of CO2 does in the environment. How much should we be emitting? How much is the industry producing? That's that's the next step. Why do we care? Right. And I'm not sure that conversation is present. So if you talk to my industry colleagues about why we should care about veterans health care, very poignant conversations, very passionate, very genuine. I think the argument around the environment is still, you can put, you can point to so many environmental impacts that have occurred way before the proliferation of vehicles and things of that nature. So I think there's still the reliance on, well, does this matter? What is the actual impact? And I think there needs to be more dialogue and understanding around that. that that's excellent to know. I mean, a lot of our audience, uh, because of our sponsorship, you know, Simmons Energy being one of them, there's a lot of the the finance dollars that you're talking about will be listening to this. Mm -hmm. And so will the leaders in, in the oil and gas. So 
that's that's good to know for us to how we can help maybe spread the message, get the the genuineness from the industry involved. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah. I think to your point, though, I think it's the incremental improvements that can be made that when you think about the compounding effect of that really makes a difference at the end of the day. So we want to talk, I want to talk a little bit more about ESG, uh, particularly on the social aspects of it, which I know is near and dear to your heart. It is very near and dear to my heart. I I secretly have a mission of uh, completing a lateral foot for less for my customers, but my, my real mission is to create socioeconomic movement in nine. And I think we've been very successful at that. So talk to us about that. Sure. Uh, so to me, that's the American dream. This is one of, and the energy industry doesn't do a great job of talking about this, but we're one of the last industries that's not completely unionized. So we have an opportunity to take kids that might have a high school degree and actually create many different entrepreneurial avenues if they want to go down that route, but corporations where they can really move within those corporations because you don't have a divide like you have, for instance, in the auto industry. So what we try to do is look at where were people five years ago and where are they today? And what do I mean by that? I mean, what is their earnings potential? What is their responsibility? How have they developed as a leader? How many people are they responsible for? That's really important. That rising within our corporation is critically important. And then having those leaders pass that on. I don't know which one I think is more important, nature or nurture. They're both very important. But I'm a big believer that we've got a lot of natural leaders that might not have formal education, but you just have to give those guys just a little bit. And the second and third order effects that they can have on your team is huge. So, you you know, they've got all the grit, all the tenacity, all the persistence, and they have ability to relate to people. So we're just, we capture that talent and we vice grip it and, and we try to throw it as high as we possibly can. Our goal is always to make people be right above the bar of their potential, not too far above, because then you you put somebody in a sink or swim situation. Mm -hmm. We're constantly pulling folks up. And if I look at my leadership team, that second layer down, they weren't anywhere close to where they are today. And that's awesome. I love that because that's the whole purpose of capitalism is to have this forward momentum where you don't have a landed estate with certain names, you know, that live off the, the, the tax wealth of a nation, right? That's a huge differentiator for America is to create that competition. And I really feel growing up in Massachusetts, the unions have fundamentally stifled that. So it's been amazing for me to come into an organization where this wealth creation and job creation is unlimited. Um, the other thing that we're really focused on is healthcare. So we have uh, one of the highest subsidized healthcare programs in the industry, and it's a platinum program. We're probably one of the few companies that offers IVF to our employees because we just don't believe that having children should only be something that wealthy people have. So it's really the full spectrum. And you can do that as a, as a Delaware corporation, you have every bit of capacity to do that in this industry. And that's magical because there's not that many industries left like that. I think that's fantastic. I do too. That I'm your, your passion. I mean, for those of you who aren't in the room, you could just feel you light up when you talk about that. I mean, I I love my people, people exactly. And then belief in people is a big deal too. And that that you said, uh, I, when David and I were getting ready for you, we were asking each other questions and I'm, I was curious. I was like, I, I, 
I was wondering how does she get the culture through to all, all the people. And I was asking about social media and technologies. Mm -hmm. And David goes, you know how she does it? She goes out into the field. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm curious to know how much time are you out there? Because what you're describing is belief in people. And people, I'm a huge believer that nobody really believes in themselves the way they should. You're and absolutely right. They don't. It's amazing. But you can break that. Yeah, I, I agree. How you do, you, how do you help them do that? Well, uh, first of all, you have to put the right leaders in, in charge of them. So you have to have leadership team that believes their primary mission is to develop the people underneath them. Because if they feel like they're individuals that is, you know, and they're part of a collection of a workforce, it's very different. So if they're compensated and they are um, held to a standard to make the folks underneath them better and have them rise up and take their positions, that's very different. And, and to answer your first question, I spend my summer in the field. So I haven't figured out the battle rhythm uh, perfectly by any means of being a public company uh, CEO. But what I have figured out is that the investment community, boards, et cetera, they, are, they have a quieter pace in the summer. And that really allows me to dedicate my time in July and August to going to my field locations. And I don't get near as much time in the field as I'd like. But the time I get is so impactful because it's amazing what people will tell you and you can really glean from them what are the challenges they're facing either in the workplace or their families. What do they like about the company? What don't they like about the company? It's just, you you know, within 15 minutes of walking onto a well site or in a shop, you have an instant sense of the morale, whether it's well run, whether it's appreciated. It probably drives my management team nuts, but the amount of emails I get or texts I get because everybody in my company has access to my cell phone and my email. I get that stuff all the time. And I love that because it's just an open door channel. It doesn't mean we catch every bad pocket of everything, mm. but we're a very transparent organization. And the whole reason that we're named nine is because we always believe we have somewhere to go, some, some better place to get. Um, and this servant leader culture is um, absolutely from my experience in the Marine Corps, where you eat last, um, you are 100% about your Marines. And likewise, they're all about each other. So, you know, you're completely stripped of your individuality in the Marine Corps. And that's been so impactful to me. So, yeah, there's not one thing that is more energizing to me than watching my people succeed. I know David asked a couple of questions, but before I was curious, the comment that Petraeus said to you when you said, I don't have a future in the military, I might as well just tell him everything I wanted to. And he said that uh, that's the truth I need. Yeah, I'm curious. And I think the, I, I know the answer, but I'd love to hear it from you. And when you say your team has your cell phone and your email to me, that's, you may have taken that, whether consciously or subconsciously, and saying, I need to hear what's going on. Is is that a spoken truth that you speak to your people? I mean, or is that just kind of a known? How does, yeah, how does that no, get translated? I think now we've all been together for a long time. It's a known. So I, you know, I trust my management team very much so, right? But if all of us were in the room, sometimes we get it wrong. So sometimes you need those little lifelines out there um, if you've missed something right? That's just, that's just good process. So the accessibility is a balance because you, again, you don't want to undermine your management team, but you want to be accessible and you want people to respect that. And I feel like my folks have struck a really good balance there. So yes, I think they know that we want to hear 
we want to hear it and we want to improve it. So it's it's striking the culture. And we've we developed a leadership development program in 2015 when we didn't have a dime. Actually, we had a dime to our name in 2015. We didn't have a dime to our name in 2016. <laughs> um, but while we still had that dime, we brought on this awesome Navy SEAL. And, you know, we're very autonomous at nine. So I probably some people probably hate it, but I give almost no direction. Um, I give intent, but almost no direction. And so it, it comes from being underneath General Petraeus. He's very, very similar. And actually, I'll just tell you this one little story. When I was in his office, and again, I, I rarely saw him in Baghdad. Um, but when I came back again, I saw him in Baghdad for a little bit. And I remember him putting his boots up on the desk and telling myself and my colleague, you know, just there's a Iraqi border force along the border with Iran and they've got a pulse. They've got a heartbeat. Yep. Just can you go find that? You know, and I was like, okay, that's it. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Let's just go figure that one out. But, um, we'll so what the, I did the most to, dangerous yes, part. Yeah. <laughs> to poor Jason Hitchcock is, uh, said, great, just go ahead and develop that. And, um, years <laughs> later, this has been so impactful yeah. and it's been all his own doing. And he has just developed this program that really sets the culture at nine and it's develops leaders. In fact, I've got a bunch of them that are here in Houston now and they're learning about leadership. What does that mean? What, what does it mean to be a good leader? What does it mean to be a good nine leader? And that was one of the other more formative things we did in the company. And that is one that we don't cut on a budget from a budget perspective. And we wanted to reach down deep into the organization. We wanted to reach that, that either district manager or field service supervisor. So we actually try to bring them in with their families and we do retreats with them and we let, let them get out of the battle for a little bit, right? We bring them to nice hotels and bring their kids and let them have a good time. And I get to go spend some time with them. You know, that's been awesome for me. So it just, you know, it really re-energizes me to go to work every day because it's like reminds you who you're working for. And I remember General Petraeus telling me one time he used to line up on it was like one day a week and he would let the soldiers come into Baghdad and take pictures with him. And I remember saying to him, sir, like this is you don't need to do this. He's like, no, I, I do it for me because it reminds me of why I'm fighting. And uh, it's kind of similar to that. I, I don't mean to to go back to the technology aspect, of, but it's. I don't know if you've looked online at, at some of the, I don't want to say reviews of nine, but comments about nine energy that does translate from people in Midland and in your areas that maybe aren't your Houston center. So I don't know if you've ever gone and done that. I not. haven't, I haven't looked at those reviews. That might be uh that might be scary. <laughs> well, listen, there's always going to be the pros yeah, and the cons, but yeah. I mean, you could definitely tell that I didn't, the, the part about the families, I didn't know that specific story, but there's yeah. a part online where I read where they talked about the family involvement. I bet you that's what yeah. they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, we're we I don't really believe you can have a sustainably good life and business without a good family. Yeah. It, it eventually takes you down, right? And uh missteps there are really tough to come back from. You can come back from them, but um at the end of the day, as I always tell my employees, nine is not going to be there for you on your deathbed. They just won't be. But your family will be. Yeah. You know, so I, I would never try to make my employees choose between their job and their families. No, it's, it's one area of, of conversation I've always enjoyed having with you. And we talk about people and culture. And, and I think you know, when you think about you can have the greatest technology in the world, and the greatest equipment and all this sort of stuff. But if you don't have the people there, you know, it's all for naught. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. One thing I've discovered is that 
men want to be with their kids too. Men want to see those sports games with their kids. They want to be involved. They want to be good dads. They don't always want to be throwing back drinks at the bar, right? They've been pigeonholed into that. And sometimes that's a heck of a lot of fun, by the way. But that's that's a stereotype we've placed on them, right? I have a lot of, well, incredible business guys, but they're also incredible dads. And and a lot of them are incredible husbands. So they're, they have the freedom to do that at nine. That, that's kind of what I was asking you, the, the dates earlier, right? From yeah. 2002 to 2014, that 12-year period, and then 8 to 20, 12-year 12, 12 period. The difference between what you see, because I, I, like I said, I'm... I'm oil and gas, my grandfather, father. So to me, this is my 20th year in the business. It is, I'm curious to know, because you didn't have any desire to come into oil and gas. It's kind of just fell in. I don't say fell in. I mean, you worked for it, but it was It it fell into my lap. (laughs) Again, it's all, I credit all of that with Ellie Simmons. Well, so what does it look like when you talk about the dads and the the husbands and, uh, you know, strong husband yourself and family? How does that 12 year period look to you from when you started to where we are? I mean, I feel like there's been a lot of change, but again, I, I, I don't want to be looking at the rose. I think there's, I think there's been a lot of really good positive change there. I can certainly say in our company, I feel like we've, we've been very intentional about it. And so if you look at us today in 2020, very different than how we looked when we started building the company in 2010, as it relates to that subject, Mm -hmm. but we've done a much better job of bringing folks in and trying to make them part of what we're doing and understand what we're doing. So uh, we, we haven't done a perfect job of it, but we're, we're trying. And so I think that's made a big difference. And I think you've seen a lot more women enter the industry. I was at a meeting with one of our big customers yesterday and not half of the engineers were females, but we saw a good chunk there. And that was very nice to see. So I think the more diverse the employee base becomes inside the industry, you're going to see a more diverse approach to family, religion, healthcare, et cetera. Um, And I think that's always positive for the industry, Mm -hmm. but I'm a big believer that diversity yields the right answers. And gives you different perspective. I, uh, I certainly seek it myself, but, um, uh, I think obviously a lot of a lot of room for improvement there in the industry, but uh, I think to your point, I think we're going in the right direction. And I I uh, jokingly tell people that I uh, I find you more intimidating than most most men just from <laughs> just from your experiences. All that being said, I, I think a lot of work there. We could have a, a week long conversation about some of these things, but part of what we try to do in these conversations with folks like yourself is is get some additional perspective from some of the other challenges you've had. Do you mind talking a little bit about, you know, kind of taking a company public at the time at which you did and and also being a CEO of what was a private company, now a public company? I think that's always interesting to the extent that you can comment on. Something. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think uh, a lot of this is is very challenging. There's no right answer in any of it. When we did our IPO, which we finished in January of 2018, it was not the traditional path to IPO. I mean, typically you have a company that's on a really strong growth trajectory and you're accessing the capital markets for additional ways to finance future growth. Now, the second part we were doing because we had acquisitions we wanted to do, to do and we needed a public currency in order to do that. But we certainly weren't on a path of years of growth. In fact, we had a going concern clause 
in our audit that year. So it was a very different shape and a very different process. This wasn't a, you know, everybody has a, a plane and a get rich scheme the day of close. It was, it was survival and it was the next step in our survival. And I'll tell you the management team and ultimately the board took, took a number of steps back on valuation in order to get that IPO done. And it was the right choice. But it was very challenging to bring everyone together. And in fact, the banks, it was over Christmas and we had uh, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and getting the banks to to go out on a limb and bring us public was challenging because, of course, they want to make sure they don't have any failures for SCF partners. So there is a slight risk aversion there that I think might not have been there had you had maybe a different sponsor or not such a prominent majority uh, shareholder. And so that was a little bit challenging to get to corral everybody and get them to agree on a, a price. So I told my team, we're heading to New York. We're going to be in place. We had a pricing meeting on Monday night, ready to launch. But as of that time, we still didn't know if we could launch the IPO. So it was right up until the very last minute that we were hanging on the edge as to whether we were going to go or not go. And I think, you know, uh, if truth be told, there were some dissenting parties in that conversation. So it was very challenging. It's very hard to take a team. We got on file with the SEC in that April of 2017. So the corporation, the team was ready to go. And then the markets collapsed. And I can remember being in Boston in June with all my suits so excited to go and get on the phone on a Sunday with the banks. And they basically said, like, the equity capital markets are shut, doors shut. And I can remember I was there for my HBS reunion. And I can just remember walking down the street in the morning, actually, to get my hair done for reunion. And just randomly, these tears just started pouring down my face at 7 a.m. in the morning, walking down Newberry Street, because I didn't know which way to go then. And I was so worried about the future of my team. Like, where do I put them? What happens if I can't do this and I can't get rid of that debt? Um, it was so overwhelming to me. So, you know, when you kind of see people standing on the bell platform and there's all that exuberance and excitement, you don't see kind of all the trials and tribulations along the way. Um, it's such a long journey. It's such a hard process. And the roadshow is something that, I feel like that's a one-time deal because it's so <laughs> grueling, you know, and I um, came home, you have kind of a, you have a Saturday and a Sunday in between. And my poor son had strep throat and he had the flu and I got strep throat that Sunday. So by the time we had hit Chicago midweek of the roadshow, I remember getting into Chicago around one in the morning and our first meeting with a hedge fund was at 6 a.m. And I remember looking at this phenomenal woman who runs our IR department and saying, I can't drink anything, but I need to have some water or something, but it's like my throat is so tight and closed. So it's just, it was just this process. Max stress. Of, yeah. Max stress. Um, and the other thing I would just offer is, you know, you can kind of say, oh, here's Ann Fox's CEO, great marriage, great family. All that's true, but so much on the way. I mean, my daughter, Elizabeth and I are still working on our relationship because, you know, I gave birth to her on a Thursday and I went back to work that Monday morning and I needed to because oh the, 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 the company was in peril. We were in peril. We weren't going to make our covenants. We needed to make massive cuts. I was responsible at the time for over a thousand people. 
So I don't have guilt towards her for doing that because there were a lot of their families I was responsible for. But my point is, is the impact of walking out on an infant like that is really untold. So the point being is that with every leader, there's tremendous amount of sacrifice. Mm. And, you know, it's not all beds of roses to kind of get to where you are. So I just want people to have a realistic pic picture that, you know, CEOs are very real people. They have suffered very real issues in their lives, health or otherwise. Um, and it's really, I think maybe what is the differentiator is that you're always present to who you're responsible for. And so as you make your decisions, whether to go left or right, you have signed up for that. And, uh, and my family understands that. My children understand that they may not be the front seat for me all the time because there's a lot of other children uh, I have in my responsibility. I, I can't tell you how impactful that story is. The Thursday and back to work on a Monday because the responsibility you feel. Yeah. I and I don't know if this is too crude. My husband will kill me for saying this, but um, I basically had to wear like a diaper to work because I had like just given birth. So we were like trying to figure that whole logistics out. Um, Cause it's, you know, we're still, this is still a physical process, yes. folks. <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, it's, um, and then I just literally, it, for all those listening, um, both of these guys just like fidgeted in their chairs. <laughs> well, no, I do think it's funny because it so, speaks to who you yeah, are. But, yeah. um, but anyway, it's, uh, it's, it's just, it's not, I just don't, I hate the image of like, wow, this is just an insurmountable position. That's why I always talk about being uh, rejected by a lot of the Ivy League schools because people kind of sometimes think you are a person who you are not. And actually so much of success, in my opinion, is just being good to your fellow man and just being kind and generous and conscientious and, and just being ever mindful of the needs of others. I, am, I think that's 100% true. Because I love that story. I'm sorry. You, and I, I hope that I'm sorry to able to cut you yeah. off. I just can't get over it. And you know, I know the people that are listening to this. I know that there's women in business that, you know, you can't win, right? You're either going to sacrifice at home. I, my wife, smarter than I am, master's degree, and she's just, she's like, you can't have it all. And I just, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you telling that story. And as, as a dad, as a husband, but then at the same time, I just know there's women that are going to love to hear that struggle. Well, thank I you appreciate that. that. Thank you. But to your point, though, that you just made, I think, I think the reality is, your success, it certainly has to be uh, driven by you, but it is not all about you. It's you've, you've got to have other people. Oh, yeah. I mean, and it's, good uh, leaders recognize that. It's only your team. They yeah. carry you through everything. Yeah. The goods, the bads. They're wonderful people. I mean, how do we even talk about anything after? How do you top that? Well, I mean, I was, I mean, I was wondering to talk to about Ann's technology, which is cool, <laughs> yeah. but, you know. You know, this stuff is is, there, is This golden. is real life. Yeah. I mean, this is how you lead. I, this is the kind of stuff that... There's again, that's the kind of story and the and the realness and the commitment to just what your mission is that will never come across when you're on stage talking to people or in a 30 minute lunch. Mm -hmm. And and again, I, I don't mean to joke, and I know David's got some phenomenal preparation and I want to talk about whatever we want to talk about, but it just like, and this is this is you're you're absolutely right. This is who we are. We are a it is a community of people. It is people in West Texas and Odessa and Houston and Dallas and Tulsa and you know, pick your city. And ultimately, we're trying to do the best we can for the energy use of really the world, but certainly the American energy use. And I just, I don't know. That's just yeah. a story that will never translate. It's, so, it's Well, so, it can translate. We just have to do, we have to translate it. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I, I was last week in, in Midland, always uh, sponsor a table or two at the top hand dinner, which is always a lot of fun. Also a very 
you know, they, they did have, uh, uh, they've had, uh, a female top hand in the past. And, and one of the guests that was with me that never been to the top hand award, uh, this year, Dick Salisbury, uh, from Salisbury industries won it. Uh, Javed Anmar was the year before and, uh, and a whole host of other people, all very interesting stories. And in every one of those stories, they talk about, uh, their leadership. They also talk about, uh, their community engagement. And my guest, Bruce, Bruce Ross was, was there. And he said, uh, you know, David, it, it's these, these videos and they do these really well, um, defined videos. The industry ought to just, you know, pay for advertising time during the Super Bowl and play one of these videos about these individuals, whether it's Mac Chase, you know, helping all these kids from Artesia go to school wherever they want to go to school or what Marathon's doing in school or what you're doing with your own uh, people at, at nine and being focused not only on the individuals, but their family and understanding the importance of that. I think the industry does so many incredible things. We just do a terrible job of communicating it. I think a lot of it is um, because everybody kind of keeps their head down and, and and just does what they do. But we, we, we've we entered a, a new territory where I think we've got to do a little self-promoting and in, and not in a, not in a, a big way, but, but definitely in a very measured uh, collaborative way. In a data-driven way. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, we're, we're time. I don't, I know you're busy, so we don't hold you forever, but I do want to know it for 2020, what are some initiatives that you would like to, to share that you're working on that, that nine team is working on in, in just something that you would, uh, that we need to know about technologies sure. or otherwise. Sure. Well, I'll hit um, on technology and then also I'll hit on something we're doing organizationally. Um, our technology, we're launching, we're launching dissolvable technology into the market. And that's important because it really allows us to increase the efficiency of completing a well and bringing product to market. So you can reduce your upfront AFE, you can increase your IRR because you're getting that that barrel to market faster. But very importantly, um, if you think about one well bore, you can take 84 cars per well bore off the road driving for a full year. So when you think about uh, kilograms of carbon, CO2, that's a really tremendous impact to the environment because you're just taking so much diesel out of the process. So it's been our little bit of a way of, of trying to you know, create differentiated products that also have uh, an environmental impact. It's an easy way to do it. Um, organizationally, we're on a pursuit of uh, operational excellence this year and sustainability in that and the ability to scale it. Um, and that's going to be a really deep dive on uh, the human element of things as well as the process and systems behind it. It's awesome. Well, I, uh, we, I honestly, I'm enjoying this thoroughly, but I know that uh, as I've mentioned, you, we've got a limited time with you. Um, what, uh, your website, we, I want to make sure that we plug everything we can for, sure. for nine. What is your, your website? www.9energyservice.com. Nineenergyservice.com. Correct. Okay. Um, and you're, you're headquartered in Houston. We're headquartered in Houston. And, and what is your stock ticker? Uh, nine N I N E. There Wonderful. you go. And thanks for coming on. Thank you. Really did appreciate you doing this. I appreciate you guys. We'd love to get thanks. you back on. I know we talked about maybe getting Patty and, yeah, and some other fun. folks. I think it'd be great to get their perspective. It would be. Agree. Now you have some female CEOs, right? You've yeah, got yeah. Cindy and Vicky and Holly and 
yeah, it'd be fun. Yeah. We got more coming too. Yeah. So I'm really excited <laughs> awesome. about that. Awesome. And thank you again so much. Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. So thank you guys for joining us on the Oilfield 360 podcast. You can go to any of the podcast platforms. You're going to find us under Oilfield 360 podcast. We're also on oilfield360.com. We've got a partnership, media partnership with World Oil. So you can find us there. Really, you look for us, you're going to find us. So we appreciate it. Once again, Ann Fox, thank you for your time. Good luck in 2020. Thank you both. For more information on today's guest and to learn more about our sponsors, please visit www.oilfield360.com. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, www.simmonspsc.com. World Oil, www.worldoil.com. Prang & Associates, www.prang.com. EIV Capital, www.eivcapital.com. Galtway Industries, www.galtwayindustries.com. Tomahawk Safety, www.tomahawksafety.com. Range Valuation Services, www.rangevaluationservices.com. Lockton Global Energy and Marine, www.lockton.com. Piper Sandler Companies, NYSE PIPR, is a leading investment bank and institutional securities firm driven to help clients realize the power of partnership. Securities brokerage and investment banking services are offered in the U.S. through Piper Sandler & Co., member SIPC and FINRA, in Europe through Piper Sandler Limited, authorized and regulated by the UK Financial Conduct Authority, and in Hong Kong through Piper Sandler Hong Kong Limited, authorized and regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission. Asset management products and services are offered through four separate investment advisory affiliates, U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, Registered Piper Sandler Investment Management, LLC, PIPR Capital Partners, LLC, and Piper Sandler & Co., and Guernsey-based Parallel General Partners Limited, authorized and regulated by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission, Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler are the energy specialists of Piper Sandler.